Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Amen. Well, this week I am uh, re-recording my message from this past Sunday because we had some technical difficulties on the live stream, as so often happens when we're trying new things. But um, I'm really excited to continue on in this series, uh, Kingdom Manifesto. You know, our yearly vision for the year is all our allegiance to King Jesus. And what we're hoping to accomplish this year is to reimagine faith as this kind of passive trust or assertion of a few kind of key theological points, and rather to pivot towards a full-bodied giving over of ourselves to following Jesus as our King in our mind, our body, our spirit, our heart, every part of who we are is gathered up behind him as the one who we claim that we are following. And so we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in this series as kind of this manifesto for kingdom living, that when we look at the way in which Jesus is calling us to live, it actually indicates the deeper realities of the heart of the king himself. How do we learn how to trust him? What is he like? Well, we live it out by doing. So even a couple weeks ago when I was talking about giving and praying and fasting and saying so much of our faith, we only get it when we do it. It's not something that we can understand intellectually or we can get in all of the data and then eventually make a decision, but it comes through action. And what we're finding here towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is continuing to, to pivot towards how we treat one another. And I think what's so radical about this passage, about judging others, is that the first people we are called to love and be loved by are those in the church. That King Jesus is inviting us to live in what I like to call kingdom friendship. Now, first of all, we need to reassess what Jesus means by judgment, because I think this has often been misconstrued for us 
in our modern society, we, we, we see things like only God can judge me and so-and-so's being judgmental. There's an inherently negative aspect to that. And there, to a certain degree, there would have been at the time of Jesus as well. Remember that the backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount is, by and large, contrasting the righteousness of the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and the scribes, with the invitation to live out of a deeper, more purposeful spirituality as the followers of Jesus. And so in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells those who are listening to him, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, which initially to them would have been a total shock, um, because these are these are the professional uh, religious people. They're the ones that really get it. Their Torah reading is better than anybody's. Um, They're following the rules is better than anyone. And Jesus is kind of subverting that understanding of who we think is getting it right. Um, and in order to invite us to a far deeper posture of the heart, that it's not about behavior modification, but actually about being formed day by day to look more like Jesus and thus to look more truly human in the way that God has designed us. So judgment for Jesus was not simply a critique of someone's behaviors, whether or not they're following the rules, but actually entering into a certain depth of relationship that requires of us vulnerability and boldness. You see, the Pharisees, they were constantly measuring everybody else's obedience to the Torah based on their legalistic interpretations of what's what's kosher and what's not, what's in and what's out. And it was a type of religious system in which there was very little grace because you were always being measured to standards that no one can possibly maintain. But in the meantime, most of the obedience then becomes as an act of fear or just trying to be a good boy or being a good girl. And it wasn't really about this far more deeper and beautiful aspect of developing a depth in relationship where we're encouraging one another on the journey of holiness. Now, there's another category that Jesus gives us here, not just with this idea of judgment, uh, you know, calling back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but towards the end of this little passage about judging, judging others, he says, do not give to dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs or swine. And there's an impor- important uh, cultural context to what Jesus is saying here that helps us to understand where this type of deep relationship we're being invited into uh, really plays out. Now, in Jesus's day, uh, pigs were considered unclean. According to the Torah, a pig is an unclean animal, so they did not keep pigs, and they certainly didn't eat them. Um, and similarly, dogs were not kept as pets. They were around, they were kind of pests, but they weren't really uh, treasured as pets like we would today. Um, and so pigs and dogs, even though it sounds very derogatory, um, were relegated to those who are outside of the people of God, being the Jews in the time of Jesus, the, the Gentile people. And so the principle there that I'm going to kind of come back to towards the end is um, a principle in which there's a level of accountability or depth of relationship that we don't offer to our friends, family, co-workers, and so on, who are not also following Jesus. Um, and it's interesting because, again, we, we often use this phrase, um, only God can judge me, but that's not actually true, and that doesn't fall into the category of being a Christian. That that is that's a line more from Tupac than it is from the Bible. And for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says to us, 
What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And so there is a call for those of us who are on the journey together of following Jesus, of striving to look more like him day by day, that we are to hold one another accountable. And, and I hope that as we move on, what you'll see is not it's not simply about making sure that we're all behaving appropriately, but that we're living in a way that we're being formed because we have this common vision of who we are to become as the church. And so there's a deeper principle here that we have to understand that's a vision of relating that Jesus is inviting us into. And I think it's this, that kingdom friendship blossoms when we invite one another into our secret worlds. Kingdom friendship blossoms when we invite one another into our secret worlds. Now, what do I mean by our secret worlds? You know, I think human beings are kind of like icebergs. You know, you, there's kind of the 10% that's exposed on the surface, but 90% of the iceberg, most of an iceberg is below the surface. And I think that's very true for you and I as well, that 90% of who we are is not apparent and is not out front. And this is our hopes and our dreams. It's our fears. It's our disasters. It's our shames. It's our desires. All of these, this inner world, this rich inner secret world that you and I are walking around with, where we are all immensely profound creations waiting to be discovered. And that's partly us discovering ourselves, but it's also um, allowing other people to discover that. And God designed us to be fully known within the context of community. And indeed, I think it is one of the most profound places where we encounter the love of God and are transformed by that love is within the Christian community. I think it is absolutely vital to who we are as Christians. It's not an aside. It's not an option to be part of what we call the church. But over the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing, this is the question that's really hit me hard. Why are we so afraid of one another in the church? Because if we're honest, this grand vision Jesus gives us of the Christian community, um, most of us have not experienced that. And that disappointment, that radical disappointment of not seeing that high vision of community and depth of kingdom, friendship, kingdom, relationship blossom, means that many of us are walking around with untended to wounds of disappointment. And I want to address this kind of in two places. One of them is kind of a question of, of theology. I think for many of us, the what we've inherited about our salvation and how that relates to the church. And the second is more about those experiences where we don't feel safe to open up to the people that we're in community with um, because of what's happened to us in the past, or we don't feel like we're equipped to engage and to live up to the challenge that Jesus is giving us uh, in doing good kingdom judging of one another. So it's a bit more about our experience. But what I'd like to do here is I'm just going to pause. I want to give you 30 seconds just to, just in the quiet of your own heart to consider who are three people in your life right now that you would consider deep-end friends uh, uh, who provide a space for you to enter in, to be fully yourself, um, to expose some of that secret world of yours. Let's just take 30 seconds and consider that.
So as I'm going through this, I want you to keep those people in the back of your mind and not as a way of testing those relationships to see if they're good or not good or if you should or shouldn't have them, but rather to see, is there an invitation to go deeper? So the first thing that I mentioned that about why are we afraid of one another in the church, I think that there is a problem of our theology. Um, I've used this quote before. I absolutely adore it. It's from Brother Stanley Hauerwas, who's an amazing Christian ethicist. He says, we serve the world by showing it something it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. And this is profound to me because it, it really speaks to the bridge between our understanding of salvation and our understanding of what the church is there for, that the church is one of the primary vehicles through which God is rescuing us and redeeming us and helping us to grow, to be more of our true selves, the self that is found in Christ. And it's this God, this idea that God is forming a family out of strangers, that the church is totally unique from all the other places in this world where people that normally wouldn't associate with one another are now finding their place. Do you realize that your identity as being part of the family of God, that's called the church, is realer and truer than even your own family of origin, your biological family? It's truer than your nationality or any of these other markers that we have in life. The truest and deepest and most profound relational identity that you have is being a Christian, being part of the church. And we see this pattern in Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount, as we've observed uh, over the past several Sundays, that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And when we love our enemies, they can no longer be our enemies, but they move to becoming our neighbors. And for Jesus, neighbor is not just the person that's immediately next to you, but a neighbor is anybody whom you encounter. But then we see another move. We move from enemy to neighbor and then from neighbor to friend. And that's the ultimate goal of how we relate to other people. And we see even in Jesus's relationship um, with his own disciples in, in another one of the gospels in John chapter 15, that's kind of before we enter into Holy Week, which is in just a couple weeks. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And so Jesus, for Jesus, his disciples have moved from being strangers to neighbors to disciples to friends. And that is the deepest place for him because there's a degree of vulnerability, of connectedness. Um, that there's being demonstrated there where there's an access that's allowed and a level of trust and doing life together. And as I really thought about this idea this week of, of why are we so afraid and what's the, the theological problem, I recognize that we have a predominantly white American evangelical issue where we have turned the idea of personal salvation into a fetish. A fetish is an object that we imbue with way too much power um, to the expense of the rest of our lives, where we fetishize the idea of personal salvation, which is that I prayed this prayer, I was baptized, I now have a relationship with Jesus, 
And I end up in this building with a bunch of other individuals that are just kind of milling about. And sometimes we do things together and sometimes we don't. But it's it's really, it's just about me and my relationship with Jesus. Um, and this is a primarily uh, evangelical issue, and it's very much a part of being a white American. Because what happens in that is that we have no real ownership of the past, and so whatever happened back in the day, well, that's that's not on me. That was that generation, and they were different, and I I should not be held responsible to the problems of the past. Um, and and because of that, we also have no collective investment in the present. So what have we seen over the past year in the Black Lives Matter movement? We've seen too many white evangelical Christians in the church seeing what's happening within our country and either making excuses why the sins of the past are not relevant today. Oh, well, that's the way the church was back then, but we've changed. Or, oh, we accomplished so much in the 1960s, and so we, we did our thing, everything's over. Um, which is, means that there's no collective investment in the present. So, well, that happened in Minneapolis. That's not what Orlando is like. Or, or that church over there, they seem like they're that way, but I'm not possibly that way. And we continually see that our theology of salvation actually exempts us from owning the whole church, from owning the fact that we are part of the family of God. And this view, I submit to you, is wildly unbiblical, where it's only about personal salvation and not about collective salvation and the ownership of the present moment as the people of God. So I read this story this week. Um, It was really powerful to me. Evelyn Perez is 39 and she lives in California and she's uh, she's an immigrant from Guatemala. Her mother brought her when she was very young, and she's kind of something of a third culture kid, like many of us are in our church, where uh, her family of origin is from one place, but she's entered into a primarily um, Anglo community, especially a faith community. And um, she got married a while ago. Um, her husband was abusive, and eventually uh, she filed for divorce, and now she's alone. And so she went to a women's group at her church at that time, which was a somewhat diverse church, primarily a white church. And in this women's group, she confessed about her divorce and the pain and the suffering she was experiencing. And they, she said that they all kind of nodded and, and kind of gave her one of those like patronizing smiles and said, wow, that must be really hard. Well, we're definitely going to pray for you. And that was it. That was all she got. We're going to pray for you. I think this is even part of the deeper reason why over the past five years, thoughts and prayers has turned into such a mockery of what that actually can be, because it's often offered by white America as a replacement for actually doing something. And so Evelyn, brokenhearted, actually went to her church from her childhood, which was much more diverse, actually a primarily Latino church. And she shared where she was at in her journey and her pain and her suffering. And the community rallied around her. They cooked for her. They sat with her. They wept with her. And day in, day out, they took care of her. And she found something in that community that she hadn't in her previous one. You see, friends, and I'm speaking specifically to the white people in our community We have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters of color because for them, the community, the people of God is not an option. The community is vital. It is vital. It is the primary family and it is white privilege of us 
to can say, well, it's just about me and Jesus, and I don't have any other investments or obligations to any other Christians. Because sometimes if we even do have a tribe, we tend to be more gathered around our worldly allegiances instead of King Jesus. We have more allegiance to our political party than we do to the church. We have more allegiance to our socioeconomic status than we do to the church. For many of us Christians who are millennials or Gen Z, we have more allegiance to what is considered cool than we do to being in the church. And so we take on all of these profoundly unbiblical ways of judging the community so that it meets our supposed needs or it justifies our position in life. And this is a tragedy because we sell ourselves short and we cut off the possible blessing that comes from seeing that community is vital, but also the blessing of being in a diverse community through whom God can do profound things. Because the church is one of the most powerful places that God is refining us, precisely because we suffer the indignation of the person that we see across the table. You mean she gets to be here? The Lord welcomes him in? And God whispers to us, yes, and you are going to have to deal with that thing inside of yourself that makes you profoundly uncomfortable because those kinds of people are also welcome. And it's through that stirring up within us of all of our prejudices that we begin to practice true vulnerability and openness to one another that leads to our spiritual formation. And I worry that too many in the white church have not been properly formed because they think it's just about them and Jesus, that the community is optional. As soon as there's something in this community I don't like, I'm just going to go and pop off and find another one that better meets my needs. So that's the first premise, that there's a theological misalignment within many of us when it comes to this deep sense of community that we are to have in the church. And the second thing that I want to address is our experiences in the past, or maybe even today, perhaps you're thinking about people in our community um, where you there is some conflict, there is some unresolved issues where you don't feel safe or you don't feel necessarily like you're empowered to step into a relationship. And I want you to kind of hold all of that in the back of your mind as we're talking about the experience element of it, because it's tremendously important. One of the things that we've been exploring in this series is that when we don't deal with our disappointments, we can't actually get to the underlying expectations. And so a very dear friend of mine sent me this quote this week from David Campbell, and it says this, One of the greatest tragedies in church is when we have a multitude of superficial acquaintances and a drought of real friends. Now, how many of you, even as I'm saying that, you're automatically kind of ticking the boxes? You have a multitude of superficial acquaintances but a drought of real friends. And I think this has been exacerbated in our modern era with the advent of the internet, that we're profoundly connected to hundreds and hundreds of people. And what it does is it itches a scratch that we have for intimacy and community, but it doesn't actually tend to the deepest needs of our soul. So we skip across the surface of relationship, tricking our brains into thinking that we're connected in reality. We are profoundly alone. And it's amazing to think that 150 years ago, this was not the case in the slightest. Your community was so local. You were only ever in relationship with 100 people, maybe in your entire life. 
Um, but now we are more connected than ever, but lonelier than ever. So David Campbell, again, the church, the greatest tragedies in the church is when we have a multitude of superficial acquaintances and a drought of real friends. The church was designed by Jesus to be the most relational place on earth, the place where friendship flourishes, and no one is left alone. Imagine that. Nobody gets left behind in the church. No one is overlooked or ignored. No one hides in the corner or is in the dark. Everybody is brought to the center. Everybody has a place at the table. Now, when it comes to this profound disappointment that many of us carry with community, I have talked a lot about how we tend to control others through legalism, which I think certainly plays into this idea of judging others and, and the still deeper reality of kingdom friendship. But I actually want to explore the expectations bit of it. One of the most profound things that I've learned over the past couple of years is that we tend to judge other people's motivations based on the way that we see the world. Whenever someone does not meet our expectations, we project onto them an assumption about why they did what they did. And it's usually critical. It's usually judgmental in the negative sense of the word. Um, We assume they don't really care for us, or they're actually a hypocrite, or they did that on purpose, or all these different things. I always think about like when somebody cuts me off getting onto the highway, and I assume that they did that on purpose because they woke up that morning deciding, I need to tell Ryan that he is not worth it as a human being. Ridiculous, I know, but these are the things that go through my head. The reality is 90% of the time, we are wrong about other people's motivations. 90% of the time, we are wrong because we assume that everybody sees the world just the same way that we do. And we don't allow people their individuality, that they might have different motivations. There might be something else going on beneath the surface that we never even knew about. But because of those broken expectations and then the judgments that we cast upon other people because we did not have those expectations met, we become afraid of one another. And I think God has always known this about the tendency of the human heart. And we find in Exodus chapter 20, when God is giving the Ten Commandments, which are kind of the, the, the central point of the Torah, the law, one of those commandments says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And I think when we try to uh, project onto other people what we think their expectations or motivations are, when we write stories in our heads about why people did what they did to us, we are breaking this commandment. We are giving false testimony against our neighbor because we're no longer curious about where they're at in life or what's going on or what their expectations might be or what they're struggling with. No, we just indict people in order to justify ourselves, to protect ourselves um, instead of entering into deep relationship. And the problem with this, brothers and sisters, is that those false testimonies, that judgmental heart, it closes us off to the possibility of what kingdom friendship can actually look like. Never, ever, ever assume that you know what's going on in someone else's life. 
why they're making the decisions there, why they have disappointed you. The philosopher Alain de Botton talks about how we have this idea in love that if you really, if to be in love means that I do not have to explain myself. And so if you really loved me, you would just know what I'm thinking and feeling. And he says, this is why there's an epidemic of sulking in our society. Because our, we're, our, we're, our expectations are not met, we're disappointed, and we begin to sulk and say, well, you should have just known what I was thinking or what I was feeling. If you really loved me, you would already know. And this is a tragedy because in reality, love is mutual education where we're continuing to teach one another about ourselves, where we're being curious, where we're asking what's going on behind the scenes. And that's where the depth of friendship occurs. Many of you who are married, you will know this experience in your marriage where the other person hurts your feelings or doesn't come through for you or whatever it might be. And that you need to learn the tools of curiosity and being non-judgmental to enter into their secret world to discover what's really happening. And I think when we do that, we continue to maintain this really high view of what kingdom friendship can look like in the church. And we are also more graceful when it comes to the times when we are disappointed, because that is going to happen. We're all on the journey. None of us have arrived. And so kingdom friendships are marked with a profound acceptance and encouragement to grow to be more like King Jesus. I think this is the radical nature of what we mean when we say love because it's the kind of love that we see typified in the person of Jesus. And, it, and again, it's a paradox. I love theological paradoxes where things don't seem to make sense in our conventional wisdom, yet we know that they are true. Because in the love that God has for us, you are 100% accepted. Just as you are right now, 100% accepted. And also... There is a 100% expectation that you are going to change and grow. Now, if we're honest, many of us have only experienced one half of that bold vision of love. Either there's so much acceptance that we're not encouraged and even challenged to grow. And this is where we find the modern uh, new tolerance movement, which is a very weak form of love that I, I love you for who you are today and I do not expect you to grow. So I don't actually believe in who you are meant to be. And, the kind, and then on the other side, that expectation for transformation becomes kind of a legalistic uh, perspective. That when you behave appropriately, when you meet my expectations, then you will be worthy of my love. And if we imagine this kind of spectrum in a way of love at one extreme there, when it's only about acceptance without uh, any expectation for growth, it's verging on neglect, where it's so tolerating that there's no actual enter, entering in and advocacy, and we're just left alone to our own devices, and that's profoundly lonely. And at the other end of the extreme, we find abuse, where people's expectations bear down upon us and do not give us permission to be who we are today. But in King Jesus, and therefore in his kingdom, in his church, we are challenged to hold both of those in a beautiful tension where we are 100% totally accepted and 100% totally expected for transformation. This week, another dear friend of mine sent me an interview with the Celtic poet David White. 
And David wrote this excellent piece on friendship. And I'm going to read a little piece of it for you. And I want you just to close your eyes wherever you're at, if, you're, if you can, um, and just really listen to what he's saying, because I think this is so key. This is David White. No matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend, of sustaining a long, close relationship with one another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the other nor of the self. The ultimate touchstone is witness, the privilege of having being seen by someone, and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them and to have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. And I love that, that, that pivot that we need from saying, oh, this, this friendship is not about self-improvement. It's not about other improvement. It's about bearing witness to who you are today and who you are becoming. And to come alongside of God and you on that journey to advocate for you however long we are blessed to have relationship with one another. So towards the beginning, I, I asked you to consider who are three people in your life that you would consider those deep-end friends. And what I want to do is I just want to take 20 seconds, and I want you to consider, are these friends the kinds of friends? Or is, is there a kingdom invitation into secret worlds there? Can I be weak with these people? Can I be vulnerable with them? Let's just take 20 seconds and consider that. You know, I sat with two people in our community over the past two weeks who broke down in tears before me and said, I'm so tired of being strong. And my heart broke in both cases because where did we learn that we're supposed to be strong? And what we really mean there is where did we learn that we were meant to do it on our own, that we're to be invulnerable? that we're not supposed to rely on other people. But what if what we are invited to in the kingdom of God is a different kind of strength that is profoundly vulnerable, where weakness is open and out front and embraced? And in that place, we actually discover love. So coming back to this passage, what is it that Jesus is asking from us here? I think there are kind of three things that we can take from this passage specifically about judging others. Number one, we need to walk in humility in owning our shadow sides. You know, he speaks of this, this plank and this speck. And one of the things that's most profound to me about that visual image that Jesus gives us is no matter what I am aware of is your sin, your thing, it's a mere speck to what, if I'm honest, I can recognize in my own life. Because I only know a part of your story, but I'm all too familiar with my own. And if I don't first deal with my 
shadow side, with my sin and my deficiencies and my pride and so on and so forth, I can't actually come alongside of you and help you with a thing that you're working through. So the profound friendship that we're invited into with one another flows out of this intimacy with God where self-reflection, I believe, is the kind of the beginning and end of all of our spiritual practices because it enables us to, to observe ourselves in such a way as we're able to see what it actually means for us to get out of our own way, to love God well, to love other people well. And this isn't a, a false humility where we so often get trapped that says, oh no, woe is me, I'm a sinner, I'm a wretch, I couldn't possibly have ever anything to offer one another. But it takes very seriously the job that Jesus has given us to do, that he wants us to be the vehicle through which he will minister to his um, to his church, that as we come alongside of each other and say, even though I don't totally feel equipped to do this, I'm going to seek to advocate for you and to help you and encourage you and challenge you. But that has to begin by me owning my own part to play in that as well, so that I can approach you um, with uh, a, a sense of gentleness. And that brings me to kind of our my second point of what Jesus is asking from us here, that we approach one another with kindness and patience. We approach one another with kindness and patience. Yes, we might call out the things that we see in one another, but we ultimately also call up because God has given us a spirit of advocacy, not accusation. And this is the challenge that I give to myself. Perhaps it will help you as well. Whenever I'm looking at someone, I say, do I see the whole person or do I just see their issue? There, this category that I've created. Do I do I just see them in their entirety? Um, just as you know, here's some of the categories that we use. Oh, that person is divorced. That person is gay. That person is you know single. Whatever it is. Once I've labeled somebody in a way that I rob them of the dignity of being a human being, I have no place, no place at all to speak into their lives. And so unless I see you as a whole person, which begins by recognizing that you are a beloved child of God, regardless of what you have done or what you believe or how you live or any of that, unless I see you as a child of God, as a whole person, I have no business approaching you and trying to hold you accountable to the things that we're called to as Christians. And that brings me to my third and final point that we discern that some relationships in our lives are kingdom-soaked, while others are not. Now, this does not mean we're supposed to have just friendships in the church and we're not supposed to be friends or relate to other people outside of the church. I think that's preposterous. But it is recognizing that our ethics as Jesus' followers are guided by our allegiance to him. It's why we do what we do. So again, Brother Hauerwas, as an ethicist, teaches us, he says, you know, we may be able to come alongside of other people in this world to do common things. So maybe we're, we're planting trees or reclaiming a forest with Muslims and atheists, agnostics, and, and whomever you have. And we all have a, we're doing the same thing, but our reason for why we're doing that work is totally different. We're not just planting a tree because we want to see the world be a more environmentally conscientious place. We're planting a tree because we recognize that is worship to the God revealed in Jesus. And that our first calling, our first vocation in the book of Genesis was to steward the earth. And so our ethics are guided 
by our allegiance to King Jesus. And so we don't hold non-believers to our standards. This is kind of what Paul was saying in Corinthians. Who am I to judge those outside the church? And the kind of vulgar um, example that we always point to is, you know, the, the, the street corner preacher who's holding up the signs, you know, telling all the people that they're going to hell who are, you know, going to clubs or whatever it is. Um, we have we have missed the mark when we think that especially evangelism is convince people of how sinful they are and that they're going to hell and then introduce them to Jesus as the solution. It's preposterous. And here's why. You don't know what sin is until you've met Jesus. And so our actual role is to lead people into a revelation of who Jesus truly is and allow the spirit of Jesus to begin to show them, to call them into a new way of living. And so you are not banned from having relationships with non-believers. You just have to understand the expectations there are different, that you're not necessarily making decisions out of a common place, and that's okay. And so it's just important that we're recognizing that some of our relationships have this kind of commonality of the kingdom and others don't and knowing what are our expectations of these people in our lives. So what I want to challenge you to this week is to reconsider those three people that I asked you to think of earlier, that you believe to some degree there's a deep-end friendship. And I want to challenge you this week to have the courage to have a conversation with those three people, inviting them to go deeper. I think we don't use our words enough when it comes to articulating our desires and our expectations in relationship. We just kind of hope that we'll figure it out along the way. But I have found in my life that the most profound uh, advancements in deep kingdom friendship have come when I have sat down face-to-face with someone and said, hey, let's do this thing together. Let's commit to one another. Let's make a pact. Let's make a covenant to step into a greater level of love, of accountability, of encouragement, so that we can continue on the journey of of becoming who Jesus is calling us to be. So my encouragement to you this week is have those conversations. Let's pray. May the peace of Christ go with you, wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home once again through our doors. We pray this in the the triune name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessings. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.